Welcome to Policy Pod, P-O-R-F podcast. The Ideas Factory is an exclusive series by ORF that delves into the big geopolitical events that affect India and the world. Hello and a very warm welcome to the Ideas Factory. I'm Nakma. Joining me is Professor Harsh Pant. The questions that we are looking at this week is... Central Asia, definitely, because Ukraine continues to pose a big problem to the U.S. Uh, as well as European countries, because uh, Russia, about 100,000 Russian troops are surrounding Ukraine. And there is a fear of uh, an increased tension or a possible invasion by Russia and Ukraine. And uh, in the backdrop of uh, this situation, mm-hmm. Russia and the U.S. are also talking. Russians are also going to talk to all the NATO allies. So it's a really important conversation that is now happening there. Uh, the talks are going on, though it, it's very significant, but not uh, uh, much hope is spent on these talks because uh, people are not very hopeful of an outcome. Nevertheless, it is very significant that the two countries are talking right now. We'll also look at the crisis in Kazakhstan and in that context we will look at the growing footprint of Russia in Central Asia. Along with that, Chinese footprints in Sri Lanka. Sri Lanka is a classic example of the debt trap, of China's debt trap. How is Sri Lanka really going to come out of that crisis and the situation in Myanmar also, Hello. India doing a tightrope walk there. So these are a few of the things that we will be looking at. All right, so to begin with, let's look at the situation in Ukraine. Ukraine continues to pose a problem for the U.S. and the Western world as the Russian troops around Ukraine. The situation there is tense and a very significant talk is going on between U.S. and Russia, Hajj. But uh, do we hope for any outcome from these talks? They're significant, nevertheless. But both sides have very widely different expectations. Russia has some demands. Russia wants the NATO NATO forces to pull uh, pull back and actually not go forward uh, because Russia says that it was probably deceived after the Cold War and understood that NATO will not expand. So how do you look at this? Do you see the U.S.'s position here um, on Ukraine as its expansion? agenda and going forward uh, in these erstwhile Soviet countries or do you see this as uh, Russia's maximalist agenda? I think Nagma, what is happening is that we are looking, uh, we have, you know, uh, 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 for a long time <clears throat> we believed or at least sections of the world believe that uh, geopolitics is over and geopolitics is not going to come back. And I think what we are witnessing today is, is geopolitics with Big Bang, uh, you know, whether it is Indo-Pacific, whether it is Eurasia, whether it is, uh, I think, uh, the old continent, which is Europe, where we are witnessing uh, this contestation between Russia and, and the US at the moment and the West at the moment. And I think uh, it's, it's classic, uh, you know, Cold War style jostling between the two uh, powers and and this expectation that something uh, positive will come out of this, perhaps maybe naive at this stage. But certainly what is interesting is that these conversations are happening, that there is an appetite on both sides to take these conversations forward, because I think uh, both sides recognize that they need to work together uh, in some ways uh, to find a solution to this persistent pers- persistent problem. Now, the problem is very simple that for Russia, its periphery is sacrosanct. It doesn't want to have any impact on, uh, uh, you know, it, it doesn't want to uh, see its security being jeopardized by American or Western forces along its, uh, n- near its borders. Now, 
in Eastern Europe, in, in Russia's periphery, what we have seen, and as, as you were mentioning, Russia has often complained that despite the assurances given at the end of the Cold War, those assurances have not been kept. And therefore, now American forces, Western forces, NATO forces are very close to its border, something that it can't accept. And Ukraine and countries like Ukraine cannot be given that choice. Uh, to accept NATO uh, or, or to to eventually become part of NATO if they, if they, if they uh, should they so desire, and I think that is fundamentally uh, you know uh, you know a very geopolitical argument about one security uh, and which is I think will be contested and is being contested in, in Ukraine, and as we as we know it is being contested in the West as well. The West uh, Americans are in no position or do not want to give any such guarantee to uh, to Russia that. They would not expand or that if Ukraine wants uh, to join NATO, that they should simply veto, uh, Russia should have a veto over, over Ukraine's choices. So I think at the moment, these are seemingly irreconcilable positions. But what is interesting is that in their, in, in their diplomatic statements, both America uh, and, and, and Russian uh, interlocutors have said that there are possibilities there, that you know, mm -hmm. some things can be worked out, though at the moment they seem very, very divergent. And uh, of course, uh, NATO and OSC will also be holding their conversations with Russia. So it's a long week ahead and perhaps a very important week. And perhaps it can lay down a marker in terms of how the geopolitical uh, evolution of our times is going to shape up. Because there yes. are pressures on both sides. Yes, uh, they've called it a difficult talk. They've said it is a difficult talk and there were no visible efforts to actually smooth over the sharp corners. But like you said, there'll be more round of talks. Europe is also a bit uh, very harsh uh, that uh, should U.S., given a lot or concede a lot because U.S. has its own problems. It has to deal with the, the, the domestic challenges, be it COVID, be it economy or the threat from China. So will U.S. be in a position to put that kind of focus here in this region? And uh, also President Putin has a uh, kind of already made some gains here because he's got a platform at least to air his grievances and uh, force Europe and U.S. to engage uh, with his agenda. So, uh, Europe's worry here and um, uh, how do you think, what role could EU have here? Uh, yes, this is, I think, a uh, phenomenally uh, clever move by Mr. Putin because what he has done is essentially put, uh, um, uh, you know, Europe in a corner, not so much America, but Europe in a corner. And, and, uh, and I think uh, what, uh, you know, in some ways, uh, what he's saying that he has no intention of invading Ukraine um, is also, uh, you, you know, sensible because uh, there is no real need to Ukraine uh, to to invade Ukraine now that he has achieved most of what he wanted to achieve. He can still pressurize um, uh, Ukraine. He still has control of, of Crimea. Uh, he still has parts of eastern Ukraine under his control. Uh, and uh, you know, with his with his military maneuvers, he has put enough strain. Uh, in Ukraine, uh, within Ukraine, and also, uh, you know, created these red lines for other actors in the region. Uh, those who, at you know, at some point may perhaps think that joining NATO is a good option would consider it, would rethink that that option today. So I think that the whole uh, shift that Mr. Putin has been has been able to accomplish in the region is is very significant, and Europe in particular will be worried because Europe certainly would not want. Um, you know, a G2 happening here. It's a different kind of a G2 between Russians and the Americans, which leaves Europeans on their own. 
Now, Americans, are, of course, are, uh, are giving these assurances that nothing is going to happen without uh, Europeans present, nothing is going to happen without Ukrainians present there. But of course, you know, major powers have their own logic of, of engaging with each other. And, and for America, the challenge, as you mentioned, is domestic. It is also uh, strategic. I think Americans recognize the challenge of taking on two powers like Russia and China together. Uh, you know, you really cannot take on in China in the Indo-Pacific without finding a means of engaging Russians. And this is a point that India has often made that I think, um, you know, uh, Americans are creating this axis which uh, uh, the West can easily manage uh, with, a, with, a, with greater degree of subtleness. Uh, and, and I think uh, you can you only have to go back to the Cold War uh, balance of power logic of Henry Kissinger and Richard Nixon. You know, they, they essentially, they managed to win the Cold War by breaking uh, uh, the Chinese from the Soviet camp in 70s. Mm-hmm. Now, today you have a position where Russians and the Chinese are together. They are becoming a strategic, uh, developing a strategic partnership. And the challenge for the West and particularly for the US is that as they draw down on uh, uh, as they, uh, you know, frame their strategic agenda by focusing on China as a peer competitor, uh, Russia is actually something that they can leverage. But the, the the strategic situation in the region, the domestic politics in America is such that uh, any outreach to America uh, becomes, uh, you know, very difficult. Uh, uh, to, to Russia becomes very difficult in, in, mm-hmm. in the U.S., given uh, Russia's involvement with Mr. Trump and the whole legacy uh, of, of, of the democratic establishment. So I think uh, Mr. Biden here is taking some chances uh, and it would be, uh, uh, you know, he would be hoping that he gets something out of it. But I think, of course, Europeans would be hoping that no decision is made without them being present there. And therefore, NATO and OSC discussions this week will be equally important from their perspective, where they can lay down their own agenda and they can make sure that Americans are tethered to them uh, rather than taking an independent position. So, uh, all right. Uh, We'll also look at Kazakhstan here. But before we move on to Kazakhstan and actually uh, Russia's uh, footprint there, Russia playing a big role in the Kazakhstan crisis, resolving the crisis with the Russian troops uh, flowing in uh, to uh, solve the crisis, uh, which the president called a coup, actually, uh, you know, the protest that Kazakhstan saw. uh, All that has happened and uh, the way the Russian troops landed there, of course, at the president's request, it looks like, uh, you know, Moscow is back in a central role in Central Asia. And this is a matter of concern for many countries, including Turkey, being one of them, prominently Turkey, because it is called a meeting of uh, the foreign ministers of Turkey countries, online meeting happening there. Uh, so so how, do you think uh, Russia's footprints are right now all over Central Asia and Russia seems to be back in a big way here? Uh, yes, I think again, uh, you know, Russia uh, is, considers Central Asia as its periphery, and and, and it, it is uh, Russia's periphery. It has been under uh, Russian, uh, mm-hmm. of course, Soviet control, and then uh, under strict uh, Russian guidance. Uh, uh, you know, uh, leaders, leaderships in Central Asia uh, often uh, have been taking their cues from Moscow. Uh, and but what I think uh, Kazakh experience has uh, alerted the world to is that. Central Asia, though it looks very stable from outside, remains a tinderbox of many, many issues that can explode any time. And this is particularly a worry for, for Russia, mm-hmm. because anything that happens in Central Asia has a direct bearing on Russian security. And uh, given the fragility, of, especially after the Afghanistan crisis, 
any fragility in Central Asia will be unacceptable uh, to Russia. And therefore, we saw swift action. We saw CSTO, um, uh, you know, which is a treaty or regional treaty organization coming into action as part of which Russian troops came, uh, uh, went to uh, Kazakhstan uh, and uh, have managed to create some semblance of stability for now. But I think for Russia, this is a key area. Russia has once again demonstrated that the kind of leverage, the kind of uh, resources, the kind of uh, strategic reach it has in this part of the world, no other power has. And this is a message not only to countries like Turkey, who have been trying to have an alternative uh, you know, engagement with some of these countries, but also to China, interestingly. Because, uh, you know, we have often talked about China's growing footprint in Central Asia. But when the crunch comes, we, we can see how involved, how uh, significant Russia remains for, for Central Asia and for the future stability of the region, uh, you know, where, where uh, you have not only Russia's involvement, but also uh, I think a large part of the world would be hoping that something dramatic does not really happen in Central Asia because, again, uh, oil and gas and mineral resources and the role that Central Asia plays in global economy comes into, into the picture. Yes, so we will uh, keep a watch on these talks that are taking place through this week. What would be the outcome? And in case there are no favorable outcomes, uh, can uh, Russia actually take a more aggressive position here? But if it does, then there will be serious consequences too for Russia. For example, uh, as you mentioned, Hash, there could probably be sanctions, uh, uh, you know, the area can suffer because there could be sanctions on Putin's inner circle, as has been pointed out, or there could also be cancelling of Russia's, uh, you know, Nord Stream to pipeline to Germany. All that can take place. But you also mentioned China's footprints here. But China's footprints are deeply entrenched in many parts of the world. For example, Sri Lanka. Look at what's happening in Sri Lanka. Sri Lanka is a classic example of China's debt trap. And the, the debt crisis is now so huge that the president has been actually asking China for restructuring the uh, the debt. We've seen a meeting between the Chinese foreign minister and Mr. Gotabaya, but uh, he's been hinting at, uh, you know, the Colombo Port City project, which was about uh, $1.4 billion or so. Then he's been talking about the the Hambantota port, uh, which was built by China's help. Uh, this is a very strategic importance. This region has a strategic importance for India as well. And India has to... Uh, you know, really keep a watch on what's happening in Sri Lanka. Chinese footprints are deeply entrenched, of course, in the way Sri Lanka is trapped right now in the debt crisis. Uh, yes, I think Sri Lanka is particularly worrying case because uh, this was uh, this was a country that was actually doing very well economically uh, before COVID nineteen uh, struck um, Sri Lanka. Uh, but I think there have been two problems. One, of course, is what we are talking about COVID and and its aftermath. Uh, you know, Sri Lankan economy relying on tourism and tourism getting affected. So this so the larger economic paradigm getting affected. But also I think there is an there is a question of economic mismanagement in Sri Lanka, where we have seen a, a, you know, a country that was doing well suddenly now finds itself uh, at such a crisis where at multiple levels there are challenges. Uh, you know, whether you look at inflation, foreign exchange reserves, current account deficit, uh, in, uh, you know, and, 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 and a crisis of employment. Uh, where, uh, and uh, I think, for many, for many in Sri Lanka and beyond, this would be something that uh, part of that not only uh, uh, 
you know, Sri Lankan policymakers have to take part of the blame, but also China, which you, as you mentioned, uh, has been entering or has been um, trying, uh, you know, uh, trying to get Sri Lanka into projects which have become white elephants, uh, where you have the debt trap, uh, the 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 debt, uh, debt restructuring argument that the Sri Lankan authorities have made recently to China. Uh, but it seems that that debt restructuring is not really happening because uh, Mr. Uh, the Chinese foreign minister during his visit did not really commit himself to anything. What he basically outlined was that, look, we have these mega en- two, two engine growth uh, from Colombo port and Hambantota port and, and look, uh, uh, this is something that uh, Sri Lanka should should involve itself more into the Asian supply chains and involve itself into the Asian economic architecture. But I think that the short-term problem is, 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 is a real challenge and we know that Sri Lanka has talked to India about it uh, and India, of course, uh, there was also an episode with the fertilizer and uh, the sub- substandard fertilizer that was sold to Sri Lanka by Chinese company and then there was a uh, India... Uh, you know, pitched in and helped Sri Lanka get over that crisis, uh, uh, you know, uh, in, in a short period of time. So I think, uh, and of course, we have seen how uh, Sri Lanka and uh, Sri Lankan authorities have now been walking a tightrope between India and China, trying to bring India into the fold, recognizing the, I think, that the role that India can potentially play in the economic uh, revival of Sri Lanka. So, uh, you know, th- there are these, the, the, the China-India competition will be Will, will be with us for a very long time. But what India can do is to help its neighbors at the time of crisis and and and, and, and project itself uh, as a country that will always stand by them through thick and thin, unlike some other countries that can come in and move out depending on their own uh, temporary interests. But what is also interesting, perhaps, uh, where uh, many in India would be thinking about is that this should not become a pattern, that you, know, you end up, India's neighbors uh, end up into... Uh, end up doing uh, deals uh, which are economically unsustainable. And then when the crunch hits, uh, it is India that comes to their aid. Because if this becomes a pattern, this will not only be, I think, bad for decision-making, economic decision-making in the region, but it it also affects India's relations with its immediate neighbors. So I think there there are a whole host of broader issues that are embroiled in what is happening in Sri Lanka at the moment. And one hopes that uh, that Sri Lanka's economic uh, revival happens fast so that uh, Sri Lanka can balance, its, uh, can pursue a balanced economic policy, but also approach India and China uh, through uh, more sustainable lenses rather than looking at, uh, you know, rather than trying to always play one off against the other. But there's a problem in another neighborhood. Uh, I mean, Myanmar has a problem and... Um Myanmar had very short-lived democracy and since last year there has been uh, pro-democracy protests as well and now with the fresh sentences against Aung San Suu Kyi. You know, India has to do a tightrope walk there too with opposition leader uh, already under house arrest and, you know, the pro-democracy protests are growing. But if a civil war-like situation uh, takes place there, then it can spill over uh, to India, which shares its borders uh, with Myanmar and the northeastern states of, uh, you know, uh, Mizoram is there, uh, Manipur is there. So there is a there's a problem there and we've seen a recent visit by uh, Foreign Secretary Harshwardhan Shrigla, which was to actually 
uh, engage uh, more constructively in Myanmar. The West has criticized what's happening in Myanmar. India has criticized too and said very clearly that it's pro-democracy. But can India has to actually uh, look at both sides and it's in a more difficult situation where it has to balance between the current uh, rule as well as the pro-democracy protesters and the leaders. Yes, I think India's task is uh, is uh, is much much more difficult than than I think the West. The West, uh, uh, you know, does not have Myanmar as a neighbor, uh, and they can take a black and white approach. You know, talking about sanctions all the time, but sanctions cannot become the single uh, most important vehicle of of man- managing, uh, you know, the the winds of change that are sweeping Myanmar. Now, the the issue there is fundamentally a, a, an institutional one. The evolution of political democracy has not been as stable as many had expected. Uh, and now that, uh, you know, the military junta is, is back in control, uh, they have, you know, they've been trying to marginalize Aung San Suu Kyi uh, against popular will. Now, it's clearly not sustainable. But at the moment, given the matrix of issues that India is engaged with uh, when it comes to Myanmar, India simply can't take the position that the West has taken that, look, uh, it's you have to move towards democracy. And unless you move towards uh, a democratic form of government, we will sanction you. India has to engage whoever is running the government there. Uh, because, as you mentioned, uh, not only because of what is happening uh, within Myanmar, but also because of the borders, uh, you know, our border stability. And also because I think in, in a fundamental way, uh, China has been the most important beneficiary of West isolating Myanmar. The, the more West has tried to isolate Myanmar, uh, Myanmar's military government, uh, the more China entrenched China has become. In fact, if you look at Chinese investments in infrastructure, even in the last few months, uh, even in the last year uh, since we have had the military government, uh, it's, it, it has grown exponentially. Now, so therefore, for India, this is a this is a situation which India has to take into account, when it, when in, which India has to consider, and therefore, India has to engage with all stakeholders, including the the military government there, and that's why I think uh, Foreign Secretary's visit last month to Myanmar was an important one because I think it laid down a marker that, look, in New Delhi is interested in democratic transition. Uh, we want all stakeholders to come to the table and have a negotiated settlement. But at the same time, like Japan, like some members of ASEAN, we are also interested in, in ensuring uh, that, uh, you know, that isolation, that sanction do not... Uh, do not become the only means of engaging with the Myanmarese government, and so there is a there is a. I think India's approach remains more nuanced uh, than than say the West, and hopefully uh, West will see uh, the the costs of uh, simply taking a unidimensional approach to the Myanmarese question. Yes, of course, uh, West can probably afford to take a unidimensional approach, but India's stance to be more nuanced, and it is more nuanced. Harsh, we're going to take a question from one of our uh, viewers. Suraj Singh asks a question about Indo-Pacific and the growing role of Indo-Pacific in shaping world politics. And he asks, is there any chance that India would play a leading role? How uh, will how it will ensure its own interest? Uh, well, you know, I, of course, we have talked about Indo-Pacific uh, a lot, uh, and, and Indo-Pacific is, uh, you know, at the moment, the center of gravity of global politics, global economics, global strategy. Everything uh, has shifted, is shifting, uh, if not already shifted to to the to the region. Uh, I think India, by its very geographical position, is the nodal actor here. 
uh, in India's uh, you know resilience in sh- and India's uh, you know uh, economic profile, uh, India's uh, geographical uh, location, India's partnerships make it a pivotal actor uh, in the emerging uh, Indo-Pacific geopolitical landscape. The, I, I think large part of, of of this would depend on how China plays its cards. If China remains as aggressive, as belligerent, as um, you know, antagonistic to most regional actors, then there is a fair chance that India will build uh, even more powerful, even more, st- even stronger partnerships with like-minded countries. And I think, in some ways, uh, those partnerships, those networks, allow India to leverage some of its traditional strengths in the region much more effectively. Uh, for a long time, India was primarily seen as an Indian Ocean South Asian country. Now, I think there is an increasing recognition that India's role in the wider Indo-Pacific cannot be ignored. And the balance of power can only be sustained if India is at the heart of uh, developing uh, networks and developing uh, uh, you know, uh, structures like the Quad and some of the others that are that are emerging. So I think India's role is very natural in the Indo-Pacific and hopefully uh, India will be in a position to play that role as the world moves out of the COVID-induced uh, health crisis and also the wealth crisis uh, and, and the Indo-Pacific uh, strategic landscape evolves much more dramatically over the next few years. Uh, you know, India's role cannot be ignored and India's India will continue to play a much more robust role uh, given that India wants to play a leading role uh, in international relations uh, as, as articulated by its policymakers. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Harsh, for that conversation. And uh, let's uh, remind our viewers that they can send in questions and some of your questions will be answered on the next episode. That's it from us on this episode of the Ideas Factory. Thank you for watching. Thank you for tuning in to Policy Pod, the ORF podcast. Please subscribe to our channel for updates on upcoming episodes.